Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Those of you that are online, welcome as well. We are in the Old Testament book of Haggai. It is page 667 in the Church Bibles, 667. And in just a second or two, we're going to begin reading from verse 12. We began last week in this section of Haggai. We've been working verse by verse. So here we are this morning in part two of what will be three parts um, in the verses that we'll be reading. Okay, this is the word of God, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Now, if you were with us last week, that little sentence there was central. And just by way of reminder, we said that the word fear there wasn't like fear as in afraid, but as fear as in in awe of God. This was worship. I continue, verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Chapter 2. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. That's the second time that God has said that. This is what I coveted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Again, the second time. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and desire and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, we're not going to get there, but you just, you you know, when our kids were little and they would pray, they would do the O Lord prayers. Remember, O Lord, bless this and O Lord, bless that and O Lord. And we would like be like, would you stop saying that? But here it is. Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty. So let's go pray right now to the Lord Almighty. Father, we acknowledge your goodness and your glory, your authority and your merciful care over us. And especially, God, the common grace that you perfectly extend to the world. 
And for all of that, from the bottom of our hearts, God, we thank you. We could not exist if it wasn't for your grace. And this morning, we, we also, God, acknowledge our sin. We, we acknowledge the cruel nature of it, and we seek your forgiveness. And Father, there is no part of this sermon that will go well at all and be useful unless you mercifully act in grace in every dimension of it, in word and tongue and rhythm and speech and wisdom and hearing and understanding to the extent that we remember, that we enjoy, that we tell others, and that we apply all of it, God. Father, we learned last week that when your word is truly preached, then your voice is truly heard. And your voice, and your voice alone, God, is what we seek now. In order, God, that we might be in awe of your goodness, in awe of your grace, that we would enter into your joy and abide in and live in your love in Christ, for whose sake that we pray. Amen. Amen. So if I had to summarize last week's sermon in one verse from the Bible, I would have chosen 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, which says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And when you hear that, there is to be this strong sense that the foundation and the strength of the veracity of that verse is not on the Christian and the Christian's love for God. But the foundation, the strength for the veracity of that verse, as it is with all good things, is on God and His love for us in Christ on the cross. And if you go back and read 1 John 4, that's much of the context. And that verse, for that reason, would be a great summary of the verses that we learned from last time as the punishment which John wrote of. Fear has to do with punishment. All of that punishment was bestowed fully once for all on Christ and his suffering and death on the cross. And you see, here in Haggai, God, after the people found out that they had done wrong, he was not going to punish them. And as a result of not being punished, they are in awe of God. And that is by God's grace. And what we're going to see this morning is grace is how we grow. It's the only way. The grace of God is how we grow. Because, and I say this purposely, and I don't think I could say this enough in the context that we exist in. We will not grow by someone nagging and scolding us with an open Bible throwing out verses. That never made anyone godly, and it does not make Christians grow. Because, and I need you to think with me, throwing out verses for moral improvement, as if that is the only thing that Christianity is about, throwing out verses for moral improvement without a context and without tying it tightly to the gospel is essentially useless. It is anti-Christ. It is anti-gospel and it it might as well be another religion and actually can easily create self-righteous people. With the God of the Bible, who is self-existent, he's not eagerly looking to find some goodness in us to satisfy himself. He's not looking for some loveliness that he desperately needs. He does not love us because of any loveliness in us. He creates it. 
Remember, we love, this is the next verse of John, 1 John 4, 18. This is verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Listen to how Martin Luther puts us. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God loves sinners, evil persons, fools, weaklings in order to, and here it is, to make them, imputate into them righteousness, goodness, wisdom, and strength. Rather than seeking his, its own, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. And therefore sinners are attractive because they are loved. And they are not loved because they've made themselves attractive. Now that means a lot, but one of the things it means is that in God's self-existence, He doesn't need us, and therefore He has to relate to us only by sheer grace. Now no other God and no other religion can do that. So I was in a context a few days ago where I was talking to a lovely mother and her teenage daughter. And the mother was talking about her daughter going into high school, and she was a little worried about friendships, her daughter being good, being around the right people, so her daughter can, you know, be a good girl, get good grades, have good values, and presumably, you know, in light of all that, have a good future. Now, I'm a parent, and on one level, I totally understand that. But then I said, because the conversation was leading just to kind of like a moral religious talk, you know, do the right thing, stay away from the bad people, and you'll be good, and your life will be better kind of talk. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, this is, listen, this is how I know. Because as we were talking, there was no mention of Jesus. There was no mention of the cross. There was no mention of substitutionary atonement, no, no mention of Romans 5, an imputed sin. Remember that everyone comes into this world as natural-born sinners, no mention of justification and imputed righteousness and how God justifies the wicked. No one mentioned on that end of the conversation about the impossibility of being righteous before God. That, 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 you know, that dear young lady can't work herself to God and goodness. So I said, and I said this respectively, my conscience does not condemn me. I said, you know, Jesus Christ for dad died for bad people and, and I'm one of the bad people that he died for. Because I can never be good enough for God, not even now. And because of that, Jesus had to take my place and bear my shame and punishment on the cross in order that a bad person like me might be righteous before him, but only by faith. And I told them both, I, I need to remember that as I carry myself out in the world so that in a world that has always needed moral improvement, right? The world has always needed moral improvement and will always need moral improvement. My only boast will always be Christ. And I said it was only the grace of God that did all that, that, that I'm right with God because, not because I'm perfectly right, but because I'm completely forgiven. And I'm a person who God has promised that he would make me more like Christ, even as I, you know, have that gift of perfection. And I repeated the word imputed righteousness because she had no idea what it meant. And I said, that's how I try to frame my life in this world. I don't always do it, but I try to. So for me, trying to avoid bad people is no real remedy. Me trying to be really good is not my ultimate cure. It is Christ and Christ alone. He, he is everything to me and I am nothing without him. And this is my own thought as best as I could, you know, read faces 
the teenage daughter was smiling. The mom was smiling, but not as much. Now, I need you to think about that for a second. And I need you to think about any do-good religion naturally moves people toward legalism and self-righteousness because they're doing it and then, of course, the other people are not. I mean, we could have had that conversation and unless I said anything about Jesus, we could have been talking like, like Mormons talk like that and, and Muslims talk like that and every other religion talks like that. Christianity is the only one that imputes the person of Christ. And I need you to think about this. Ask yourself, in all of Paul's epistles, was the era that he was writing into primarily a gospel issue or a moral issue? Was it gospel or moral? Well, you can do this for homework, but I can tell you for sure it was, it was primarily a gospel issue. And even any of the moral issues always had to do, for example, in Corinthians, with their misunderstanding or the reduction of the gospel. In Galatians, Paul has a higher concern for gospel authenticity than the moral decay in that society. So here we are again. The, count, the constant of pointing out of blemishes, that never cured anyone of their blemishes. And frankly, and the reason why I go through this, the Old Testament can be like a breeding ground for that kind of thing. And you can so easily unhinge yourself from the gospel and just go. And say, look at these people and look at yourself and like, come on everybody, let's go. So for the Christian people or pastors to think that the way that we grow in obedience, for example, is, you know, get, get the people a little bit more afraid of God. Just get a little more afraid. Let's do a little, you know, let's go Old Testament on them. That makes no biblical sense at all. Not for the Christian. Reverence for God? Absolutely. Fear of God? Absolutely not. Not for the Christian. Think, is God the Son afraid of God the Father? No. The Son honors the Father and reveres the Father. Yes, but he's not afraid of the Father. So think of it like this. Am I afraid of my dad, who's probably watching right now online? I'm not afraid of him. (laughs) He says with a little bit of shaking in his mind, I'm not afraid of him, but I revere him. I have reverence for him. So when I was with him a few weeks ago, when we were watching TV and, you know, Avengers Age of Ultron was on and the Westminster Kennel Club dog show was on and dad wanted to watch the dog show (laughs) because I revered him? Dog show, easy answer. The son respects the father. The father respects the son. No one fears anyone in the Trinity. And we are in Christ. And we are clothed in his perfection. We have the very righteousness of God. And the Son means everything to the Father. And God sees us then in the Son, in Christ. And Christ stands before the Father on our behalf. So again, as our substitute, He perfectly honors God for us. He perfectly praises God for us. He perfectly obeys God for us. He perfectly trusts God for us. And again, He does it on our behalf. Loved ones, I am not afraid of that. I am in awe of that. I know me. I know me in ways that none of you know. So when I hear that, I can't tell you what it does. 
And therefore, because of Christ and Christ alone, for the Christian, God is pleased. His perfect love cast out fear. And, and so, okay, so do we all struggle with indwelling sin? Absolutely. But can I ask you a question? Do we not also struggle with grace? With the application of grace in our lives? When we've gone to the nines in sin and we're like, can it be that easy? Well, yes and no. It costs Jesus dearly, but it's given to us as a gift. Small wonder why Jesus said to the disciples, John 15, 9, Abide in my love. That is our wheelhouse, not fear. We've been saved out of fear. In an act of perfect love, sheer grace, as Christ gave his precious blood for you and I. And just in case, before we get to the first point and the only point, you'll be glad to know. Just in case someone says, oh, people are not going to change that way. You need to tell them. You, know, you need to get in their face. And you, again, you go Old Testament on them. That's what's wrong, you know, that's what's wrong with today. Too much um, a snowflake theology, I think someone said. And so they say things. You hear them. Christians need to wake up and we need to take back what we lost. And I'm still trying to figure out what we lost. I mean, I don't think I've lost anything. Maybe they know something I don't know. However, what do we find in the text? How did the people change in the text? Two ways. In the preaching of God's word, that's from Haggai, and the giving of God's grace, which we'll learn this morning. And as a result, in that context, we learn verse 12. Again, the word fear there, do you see it? It was not that they were afraid of God and they built. That's pagan stuff. They were in awe of God and they built. What is taking place here is worship, is reverence. They know that God had spared them in their stubborn refusal to rebuild the temple. They know that God was behind the bad crops and the tasteless, you know, unsatisfying life they were living. And God mercifully told them in Haggai. They knew that God would be pleased to forgive their sins in the way that he prescribed in a temple. And so he, they knew that now that God needed that temple, if you would, for them, not for him, for them. If you want to be forgiven at that time and you want to be in God's presence, you need a temple. So they had been going their own way. They had been doing their, you know, their own thing. They'd been following their own impulses, their own wisdom. And it was ruining them, as it always will. But now in an act of free grace, God sends the prophet Haggai to tell them revealed truth, right? In other words, without God's help, everything that they think about the situation would just be speculation. Who knows if they were right? Now they know, because God preached to them through Haggai, revealed truth, and in light of that revealed truth, they are in awe of God. They, they revere Him. They revere Him. And that takes us to our first and only point. It's actually the second point on the sheet, sheet the grace of God. Well, if you have a look down in your Bible, clearly as a result of the grace of God, the hearts of the leaders... That's Zerubbabel, who was the governor, and Joshua, who was the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people. It says quite clearly that they obeyed. And what I need you to notice, that right out of the gate, the first thing that God says in response to that is not, okay, get to work. <laughs> what does he say? Verse 13, I am with you. I am with you. Now, that's a big phrase. God said that, and, and listen to this, God said that, 
I am with you to Isaac, Genesis 26. God said, I am with you to Jacob in Genesis 29. God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, I am with you. He said it in Jer- to Jeremiah, Jer- chap- Jeremiah chapter 1, I am with you. He said it to Gideon in chapter 6 of, of the book of Judges, I will be with you in the battle. He said it to Paul in Acts 18. He said it to, to the disciples before the ascension, Matthew 28. I am with you to the very end of this thing. Now, when you hear, I am with you, what does that mean? Well, first of all, let's just think of it on a human level. If you were attempting to build your house on your own, and someone who had massive construction experience said to you, I am with you. <laughs> you uh, for me, you'd go, wow. Just, just I, oh, I feel really good and I feel really secure. We're going to get this thing done. They are with me. Or if you're going to fix your car by yourself and a professional auto mechanic said to you, I am with you, it would be another, for me, it'd be another, wow. It's like, yes, with me that we're going to get this thing done. As opposed to my poor wife, last week, at the end of our baptism, we go home. We said, let's go to Duluth. So we were packing up real quick. We were in a rush. And before we leave, pretty much anywhere, we always pray. And I said in the prayer, I said, God, please help me to give my wife a really, really good time in Duluth. Okay. And to her credit, she said, oh, you too? And I was like, thank you. And then we went back to praying. All right. Before you get all gobbledygook about that, let me tell you the rest of the story. So usually when I get done preaching, I'm, I'm just my mind's already going to the next verses. And so I was thinking at that time, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. And I was thinking, I am with her, Nicole, and I'm going to give her a good time. So we get in the car. I hit something which made her sunglasses fall into the center thing between the council and the seat. And I tried to get it, and I didn't get it, and she tried to get it, and I said, I am, I am with you. I'm going to make sure she has a great time. And I shoved my hand in that council thing, and it got stuck. <laughs> and I could not pull it out. <laughs> I was trying. So we were laughing. <laughs> and, and, and I said, you know, you're going to have to get something to get, to get this out. And, and she starts laughing and she's walking to the garage and I'm looking at her face and I know that face. It's like, oh my gosh, I've been married to this for that long. You know, really? <laughs> and I'm trying to get my hand out and, and I'm thinking, you know, the I am with you and I'm thinking, what if something happened? to her and someone like you know on her and I'm like I hand it like the best I could do I couldn't go anywhere and I'm like this is pathetic and she comes back and it's still the same look it's like oh my gosh and you're gonna drive all the way to Duluth and back you know like and so we got out I mean my hand got out it was my watch it was in the way and you'll be glad to know that my hand was throbbing the whole way to Duluth but the point is some people say I'm with you and it's like ah (laughs) some people say I'm with you and you're like yes God's yes. I am with you, and because I am with you, you're going to be okay. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is we've been saying that in that day, the only place you could justifiably say, I am with you, was in the temple. So for God to say to them, I am with you there, is a huge deal. So if you're thinking, is it foreshadowing Christ? Absolutely, probably. 
You, you could literally translate this, I am here with you now. Right? So God with us, Emmanuel. So the Hebrew word for with in that phrase in verse 13, I am with you, it's the closest word in the Hebrew language that almost describes a person being united with God. Now, for example, in the New Testament, the Christian is united to Christ. We are in union with Christ. That is a real thing. 143 times in the New Testament, Paul uses that phrase in Christ to describe Christianity. And I've told you, some of you in counseling, I've told you most all, all of you in public, whenever you see the phrase in Christ, you, write, you go right to the gospel instinctively. And you think about the life and death and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension and all that it means. That's what Paul is doing. So in a metaphysical, actual, spiritual way, in a local way, if you would, in an atmospheric way, in an actual physical way, we are Christian in union with Jesus. Which means there is no part of you, if you're a Christian, that's not in him. But the better news is there's no part of him, if you're a Christian, that's not in you. And of course, as you think about it, we don't have time to do it today, but there are so many beautiful blessings that are involved in that truth. There are some amazing privileges that are involved in that truth. And to be honest with you, there's some really good warnings that are involved in that truth. Lewis Mead, a long time ago, wrote in his book, Union with Christ, at the center, union in Christ, at once is the center and circumference of authentic human existence. Okay, let me translate that for you. In other words, when a person is united to Christ, it actually means what it fully means to be human. Christ humanizes people, which means, and forgive me, which means in the preaching of Christ, it does not dehumanize people. It humanizes them. So again, here in the Hebrew language, it's the strongest word that is almost like union, but not exactly. It's a word actually used for breath. In other words, God is so close to them that you can, if you would, feel his breath. It's a word picture. The, the actual Greek, uh, Hebrew word is ne, nihum. And it, what it is, it's a word picture, an anthropomorphism. Remember, it's, like a, it's a way to describe God in human terms. And so it's like, I'm breathing on you. I am with you. In presence and in voice, my word, which is power, my presence, which is my word, which is power, it's all there for you. And of course, we find its ultimate Fulfillment in Jesus and the, and the living word logos. But here, it's like, I am right up to you. I'm not in you. Not united like in a Christian way, but I'm right up to you. Do, do you, this just comes to mind. Do you, don't you like to be right up to somebody, the people that you love? Like if you're sitting in a chair or you're laying in a bed, don't you just want to be right up next to them? Don't you? That's what's happening here. And it makes sense because they're not united because the old covenant was incomplete. The veil between God and his people was still there. Which, and again, as a side, which makes Christ in us, that's a huge thing. We've got to be so thankful that we live in this time of grace. But as I said before, in that day, 
You have to have a temple to enjoy the I am with you with God. So what is God doing? God is extending grace to them. This is the highest possible good that God could do for his people at that point in redemptive history. And and actually, you could say it like this. It's the highest state. Now, think with me, please. It is the highest state of human existence at that time. God with you. There's a few times in the Old Testament where God's spirit comes, like David and Jeremiah and and, um, who's that? Othniel and Samson. But this is not that. All right, now two questions, and I need you to think with me. As you look at the text, did the people deserve this moment? Did they merit this in any way? Now, do you understand why I'm asking this? Because you could say, if you don't look at the text carefully, you could hear people say, and so the people worship God, and God, in response to that, said, I am with you. So, what's the application of a sermon like that? Hey, everybody, let's worship God. That's the key. Let's enter in. Let's go for it. And God will be with you. Right? So, in this, I don't know. He's going to be with you in your business. He's going to be with you in your marriage, your family, your money, and sports. And and he's going to make everything go really great. But if you don't, then he won't. Kind of thing. Okay? Does that sound more Christian or more pagan? I mean, honestly, what I just said, that's the, that's the contextualization of American society in preaching. I just want to be number one. So I go to church so I can learn how to be number one. Loved ones, when I said to you that God said to Isaac, I am with you. And you can read the text, Genesis 26, all kinds of blessings flowed from that. God said that to Isaac after Isaac lied about his wife being his sister to Abimelech. When I said to you that God said to Jacob, I am with you, God said that after he lied to Isaac in pretending to be his twin brother, Esau, and stole his brother's birthright and blessing right in front of his father who could not see. And when I said to you, I am with you, or I will be with you to Gideon, when God said that, God said that knowing full well that after that great victory that God would give to Gideon over the Midianites, Gideon, you know, he would, he would make an ephod, it's a priestly garment, effectively trying to, to make the, the priesthood his and not the line that God had already prescribed for the priesthood. Now, loved ones, in every one of those situations, every one of those I am with you's that happen, It happened beyond the behavior of the people so that we could get to the gospel in the New Testament. In other words, in all those I with you's, God had to interject himself and bless those people who did not deserve it so that as time rolled on, we could have an actual gospel, an actual savior on the earthly side of it. In other words, God was rescuing those people who did not deserve it. Isaac and Jacob and Gideon. He was rescuing them by way of grace so that he could give future grace in the person of Jesus Christ. God was rescuing them for future grace and future salvation of the world. So you see, after verse 12, you see it there? There's no therefore that begins verse 13. There's a what? There's a then. Then 
and therefore are different. Therefore refers to something previously stated which caused some action. For example, okay, just throw me under the bus again. Joe fixed the family car. Therefore, because of Joe's action, therefore Nicole said to him, you know, my hero. Okay. There's no therefore there. There's a then. Then, there is simply chronological. It's stating a fact. It's not responding to something. In other words, verse 13 is grace. I am with you because that is the kind of God I am. The temple is about now and your future, but it's also about future grace for billions of people. Says A.W. Pink, grace can neither be bought, earned, or won by the creature. If it could, it would cease to be grace. That's what's happening here. And almost all of, God's, all of God's grace in the Old Testament is always pointed to future grace in the New. All right. So, three times there. Do you see it in verse 13? You see the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's, remember, that's the covenant name of God. Covenant means that when they hear that, they know that God has pledged himself to them. He's going to keep the covenant for them because he knows they cannot. If they fail, he's going to come right alongside them by way of grace and bless them like he did with Isaac, like he did with Abraham, like he did with Jacob, and on and on. He will not let go of his true people. And they are his true people. Which means a whole lot of things. But the simplest thing for us, maybe for you, you know, this morning, two things. One, I'm sure there's time to time, the people in here, we, we worry about our security when it comes to our salvation. Well, a text like this just lays that to rest. And then I'm sure that people come in here and you guys have, you're in dire straits. You're in dire straits and you can't find any work or anything that you can rely on that you've done that will rescue you from your situation. And what do you need? You need grace. You need grace. Well, in Christ, in the gospel, that's what God gives. Now, I don't, I don't just mean grace to win. I mean, you also need grace when you lose, as we all will. You need grace when you're like, yes, no sin. And grace when, oh, crud, sin. Question, did the people deserve this, merit this in any way? Answer, no. That's the first question. Second question, what does the I am with you grace that God gives to his people do to them? I look down at the text. What does grace do? Well, they stopped working and they went to the park and they played and they purchased more paneling for their houses. They ignored God because God was so easy on them. And you know, that's the problem with so much grace. (laughs) We hear that a lot. I hear that a lot. Loved ones, grace is never a problem. Not the grace of God. Grace is gospel goodness. Grace is gospel power. Grace is our only hope. Verse 14, this is what the grace of God does. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest. In the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, they came to the worksite, if you would, and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, some translations, their God. There it is. 
That's what grace does. By God's grace, if you look at the text, on the 21st day of September, 520 BC, that's the actual, if you would, English day, the people began, came and began their work on the house of the Lord. And what does it say there? And the Lord stirred up their spirits. Okay, and then we have to go back to the Hebrew there. Because what does it mean? Well, part of the grace of God is that he basically regenerated them. That's the word. He awakened them. He breathed life into them. He regenerated them. He awakened them because they were dead. He breathed life into them because they were dead. House, our house, yes. God's house, no. Doesn't seem like we can do anything right now in the situation that we're in. Like God's like, no. Let me stir you up and let me breathe life into you because you were dead. If you're thinking gospel, they were dead and God made them alive by way of his grace. Colossians 2, when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. God forgave all your trespasses, having canceled the debt, ascribed to, to the decrees and laws that stood against us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. Again, so this, this stirring is so much gospel-oriented. It's, it's projecting a type of the gospel so that sins can be dealt with, right? We need a temple here so that sins can be dealt with. We need a temple here so that we can enjoy God's presence. And so what God does, by grace, through the power of His Spirit, He incites them to activity. Something like, and this is one translation, He disturbed their inaction with His breath. Okay. Calvin says this, as only Calvin can. This stirring proceeds not from the diligence of men, but from the hidden power of the Spirit. Okay, so think of it like this. When they're, when they're building, and they're actually having some success, they can't go back to a person or, a, or a, a method or something that happened that they did so that they could build. What they have to go back to is, oh, God's Spirit did that. God's Spirit stirred us so that we can do those things. That's really hard for humans to admit, isn't it? I mean, a lot of times we like a flesh and blood hero that we can point to, whether it be ourselves or someone else, and say, yeah, that's why. That's why this is happening. That's why. That's why. But the invisible work of the Spirit, it's a little harder. So, on the 21st day of September, 521 B.C., they begin to rebuild. That's the only point for today, the grace of God. God is a gospel God. So I want you to think about this. Can I really make any application for self-improvement here? I mean, honestly, can I? This is simply, and enjoy this. Behold your God. Behold your God. Listen to Tim Keller. The Bible's purpose is not so much to show you how to live a good life. The Bible's purpose is to show you how God's grace breaks into your life against your will and saves you from the sin and brokenness. Otherwise, you would never be able to overcome. Religion is if you obey, then you'll be accepted. But the gospel is you are absolutely accepted. And then, because of God's grace, you will begin to obey. 
Those are two utterly different things from two utterly different sources. Every page of the Bible flows from the former and shows the difference. Loved ones, God's grace to us is free. It cost him deeply. He gave his son so that those who believe, you know, that they have pleased God by the quality of their devotion and moral goodness, the only thing that comes out of that is naturally feelings of superiority or thinking that we somehow deserve a deeper reverence from the common folk, whether they be in here or out there. They do not understand grace. Not God's grace. Because, loved ones, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. (laughs) If you want God's grace, all you need is need. Two things, one negative and one positive, and then we're done. By, by golly, how, how good much of evangelical Christianity has been in making Christ appear, appear so unwelcoming to people, like some kind of moral monster. That's a negative thing. Here's the positive thing. This comes from John Bunyan in his book, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. He's having, he's writing in the book and there's this conversation between a mythical sinner and Jesus. And he says, but I am a great sinner. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. I'm a backsliding sinner. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ but I've served Satan all my days. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I've sinned against mercy. Those are like the worst ones, right? When you sin against mercy, I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me. I will in no wise cast you out. That is every Christian's promise. And that is every other person outside of Jesus Christ. That is their only hope. That is their only hope. We're done. God bless you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that every sinful thing about us is buried in your mercy and dealt with decisively in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that we do not need to justify ourselves through endless works. Now all our works are just pure love, pure acts of reverence. And we would pray, God, may everyone come to see you as a God who loves lost, broken, depraved, hell-worthy sinners, whether they are outside of Christ or in Christ, because we all will struggle with sin. And may every person in this room and every person watching online and every time everyone or anyone hears this sermon, may they be able to feast in the goodness and the perfection of your unchanging love in the person and work of Christ. 
whose name we pray. And finally, today, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by this sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.